Simon Deakin, Director of the CBR, University of Cambridge. Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast today. We're looking at your research into the growth of fintech in China and the implications for the UK economy. We're also going to be talking to Boya Wang, a senior researcher at the CBR. So thanks, Simon and Boya, for joining us today. First, Simon, how does the fintech economy function in China? And why is China an interesting case study in the growth of fintech? Well, fintech basically means internet-related finance, and it's seen a great expansion in China with a huge number of peer-to-peer lending platforms coming into existence and a major role played by some very big companies in China, including Alibaba and Tencent, which are heavily involved not just in e-commerce and also in messaging services, but now in developing data, big data and big data analytics for use in credit rating and in evaluating borrowers for the purposes of loans to companies and and indeed for consumer finance. So there's been a huge increase in this whole area of fintech activity in China recently. And because China has to some degree a protected internet market, it's more difficult for overseas competitors to come into the Chinese market. They protected and built up their domestic sector. So they have large corporates like Alibaba and Tencent, but also a very large number of small firms and platforms now active in this area. And China's rapidly becoming the the global centre for fintech. What about the reaction of the big banks and also the government in China to the growth of fintech. Surely there must be rules, hurdles. I couldn't just sit at my computer and set up an app for you to buy my goods and offer you credit. Yes, I I think what's interesting here is that the Chinese government has heavily supported the development of fintech, not just by, in a sense, creating this internal digital market, but also by engaging proactively in this sector in a number of ways, building up science and technology in in the university sector, encouraging spin-offs and venture capital funding, encouraging the commercialisation of university research in areas like the Pearl River Delta. So the government's very active in this area. Whether the regulatory system is is especially light touch is a more controversial question. In some respects, the regulation of big data and the regulation of internet finance is perhaps less restrictive in China than it would be in the global north. And this may to some degree account for the exponential growth of the sector over the past five years. So are there rules about borrowing in China? If we say we're in 2018, have rules emerged as fintech itself has grown? One has to bear in mind that in China, traditionally, lending by banks was effectively lending by state-owned banks to state-owned enterprises. So researchers and government officials would identify a so-called formal sector in China, uh, state-owned banks lending to larger companies and state-owned companies. It's a small segment of the overall market, maybe only around 20%. Most lending takes place outside this formal sector. That doesn't mean to say it's outside the scope of legal rules entirely. But traditionally, a lot of lending was just on an informal basis. Family members lending to each other, members of the same community, companies informally lending to each other, often without collateral or even sometimes without written contracts. And this this still goes on in some parts of China. And in some ways, it's a very flexible system, but it's also highly precarious. We've seen in cities like Wenzhou, as recently as 2011, a major series of corporate failures and, and a banking crisis caused by the fragility of informal finance in China. Now, fintech, peer-to-peer lending, using platform lending, 
bringing together borrowers and lenders through internet, through digitalization, in some senses is an evolution out of informal finance. Okay, this is to some degree taking place outside the state-owned sector. And in many ways, it's a very important development for ensuring that small firms get access to credit, which was previously rationed. Small firms couldn't really borrow from the large state-owned banks. So in this sense, fintech is an evolution out of an existing informality, and in some senses is still rather informal. It's very dynamic, very flexible, but not completely regulated. So there are issues around systemic risk, there are issues around data protection, which are partially covered by existing regulations in China. Are there also issues of people using illegal means to get their finance, their debts, their money back? For instance, you say that it's grown up because you have had peer-to-peer lending in China. It's part of the psyche or the systems exchange in China. Well, traditionally, there was a role for loan sharks and perhaps even for private enforcement that were on the verge of illegality. There has been a lot of research on informal finance and even loan shark finance in China over the years. Peer-to-peer lending is not necessarily, of course, illegal and generally wouldn't be illegal. And increasingly, there are controls over how platforms operate. So increasingly, from 2016 onwards, the government, the People's Central Bank, other authorities, the regulatory authorities for the securities market and for the banking sector have begun to issue regulations affecting platform lending. Increasingly, platforms must have a tie to a larger company, maybe a bank, to give them a cushion in case loans go wrong. There's a very controversial question as to whether platforms should seek to guarantee loans, in other words, to make sure that lenders do get repaid, or whether the risk should fall upon those lenders. These are all difficult questions. If if you say that platforms ought to have a cushion involving a larger company, maybe a bank or a financial institution like an insurance company, that may give some lenders better security. But on the other hand, it could mean that systemic effects of failure spread out across the system and could even bring down larger companies. So the, these are very difficult questions. Fintech isn't unregulated, but it's been regulated differently from the formal sector for the most part. Thank you, Simon. Let's just turn to Boya Wang now. As I said, a senior researcher at the Centre for Business Research. Let's just go back on that concept that Simon mentioned of peer-to-peer lending, Boya. Is it acceptable in China? Historically, peer-to-peer lending has often been associated with illegal fundraising or illegal saving absorption in, in China. But because the Chinese small and medium enterprises are faced with very limited assets to bank credit. On the other hand, the government just can't neglect the important role of peer-to-peer lending in stimulating domestic demand. So more regulations and administrative measures are being implemented in this sector. So I would say the legality of this sector is being increased. You've been to China with Simon conducting interviews with business leaders there. What are the advantages that people talk about of fintech for a customer who wants to start a business and indeed for the businesses themselves? I suppose it means you can create a market for your goods instantly or almost instantly. I think one of the great advantages of peer-to-peer lending or other fintech services is the relatively simple application scrutinization process. 
compared with traditional conventional banking sector. But since the August of 2016, the central government imposed borrowing amount limit on individuals and enterprises. So the role of fintech in helping business startups has been limited because government certainly can't control or monitor the direction of the funding allocation or uses. So they were worried, concerned about the potential misuse of the borrowed money, such as housing speculations, money laundering, or other things like this. And so we see peer-to-peer lending now is moving into consumer finance. So I would say the role of fintech in helping business startups is very limited. But. Why has fintech grown so quickly in China? What's your take on it? I think, as Simon just mentioned, I mean the relative closeness of the the Chinese domestic internet industry helps the fast growth of all these. You know, now nowadays we can see all these business giant internet companies like Baidu and Tencent, and also over the past few years, the e-commerce industry in China has grown really significantly. According to the data of 2016, the total transactional volume of the Chinese e-commerce online retailing industry accounted for almost 35% of the global online retailing. So, the abundance of the transactional data also helps the fast growth of the fintech industry. Of course, Alipay is is the big example of that in China. Yes, indeed, Alipay and also、uh, Alipay's business rival like Tencent and Jingdong, they also accumulate sufficient transactional data, which helps them to build up and develop their own credit system to assess the credit worthiness of their customers. Simon, if we come back to you, if we take the other side of fintech, which I know you've been researching, but that's about debt. And business failure. If I create an app where I can offer people finance to buy my goods, and then actually they don't pay, or there is some problem, is my business more fragile as a result of offering, if you like, loans through the internet? I think what we're talking about here is a move from a more traditional system of credit rating or evaluation, in which banks would assess. Borrowers according to a number of different criteria. Often, this would involve face-to-face meetings between bank managers and borrowers. This is a traditional model. To some degree, over time, even before fintech, credit rating companies were collecting data on individuals and on companies, and this, these data were then used by financial institutions to assess credit risk. What we're now seeing is a shift from that system to one based on so-called big data analytics. Which involve, as as Boy was just explaining, huge amounts of transactional data、uh, collated for other purposes originally in the context of e-commerce or internet messaging. Those data being collated and analysed using big data analytic techniques to identify patterns of creditworthiness, which is then applied to individual borrowers. Not necessarily using data about those individuals, but an individual might be a particular type of person living in a particular neighbourhood with a particular transactional history. And in that group of people like them, there may be particular patterns of, of payment or non-repayment of, 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 of loans. So on that basis, 
We're moving to perhaps a more streamlined system. Transaction costs are being reduced. But everything now depends critically upon the effectiveness of the algorithms used in big data analytics. So we're, we're moving to a system which is still incompletely understood. And it's not altogether clear how far this is high risk. The systemic risk issue would be type of failure which can arise where losses are easily spread throughout the system through a, through a type of contagion. Okay, and We don't really know at the moment whether a shift to a big data analytic approach makes that sort of systemic failure more likely or less likely. And in fact, we're not going to know, I think, until there's been one whole turn of the credit cycle. And at the moment, there hasn't been. All this is so new, we haven't gone through a boom and bust cycle yet with this. So you're basically saying you can bail out big banks if you know who they are, if there's a crisis. But if you've got lots and lots of little lenders, it's going to be harder to confront any financial crisis in the future. I think in a sense with P2P lending, the risk is being absorbed by a very large number of individual lenders who may just be members of the public or consumers, but they're lending through the platform to borrowers who may be other consumers or companies. So the risk in principle is not taken very often by the platform itself. It may be absorbed partly by the platform and partly by other financial institutions, or it may be displaced onto the individual lenders. That's very different from the bank model. If you and I put money in the bank, generally speaking, the bank is taking the risk of lending, unless, of course, the bank completely fails when the risk will fall back upon us. But bank failures in most countries, like the UK, are extremely rare. Between the 1860s, And the 2000s, when there was a bank failure in this country with Northern Rock, that was the first major bank to nearly fail, to effectively fail for many, many decades. Uh, People depositing money in banks were more or less secure. Now, with P2P lending, there may be greater risk for, for lenders, and there may also be systemic risk. We don't yet know, we don't yet completely understand whether this form of analytical lending creates new systemic risks. In other words, if companies begin to fail, will that have a knock-on effect upon other companies? Will that have a knock-on effect upon banks? Right, okay. So at the moment, we're still at a rather experimental stage with fintech. It could be streamlining lending and ensuring that credit reaches smaller firms and indeed previously excluded parts of the sector. So it could be extremely helpful for more sustainable development to have fintech reducing transaction costs. On the other hand, there could be systemic risks associated with this shift. Now we know in China, trust is a big part of business transactions. You've mentioned that. But then shame is also part of the culture. And there have been, when there are business failures, suicides, when perhaps in a more legalised, westernised economy, people would just say, well, I've failed, I've failed fast and I'll set up another company. Not so in China. Well, I think with traditional informal finance, um, uh, as you say, peer, peer pressure, uh, shame, these network effects were and are important constraints upon the tendency of any financial system towards fragility. Okay, So I, I think one mustn't exaggerate this, but it's certainly the, the, the case that in Wenzhou after 2011, when there was this major systemic failure. We saw entrepreneurs sometimes just quitting Wenzhou, running away from their debts, sometimes going overseas. This happens. It's not just a Chinese phenomenon. It's part of the informal finance system. I think with fintech, again, we're yet to see how this plays out. But what's interesting in the Chinese context is that often P2P lending isn't just about using the platform as an intermediary. We do see platforms 
engaging in relational lending very often of of more traditional kind. So what's sometimes called O2O, offline to online lending, complements P2P. So a platform may employ agents, for example, in a rural area to go out and meet the farmers who are the borrowers and in that way get personal data about them. So building up a picture through face-to-face dealings that's more traditional alongside the internet-based P2P lending. So one might say that the great advantage of Chinese finance has been its traditional reliance upon guanxi or trust. Informal lending is low cost, personal and relational. This has been a great advantage in the past. And this hasn't been lost, one might say, with some aspects of Chinese fintech, that these fintech firms are in some cases socially embedded. This is a feature of Chinese capitalism that isn't disappearing with the move to fintech and maybe makes it distinct and different from fintech elsewhere. If we now move over to you again, Boyer, privacy and data protection is an issue in the West, but is it an issue in China or people perhaps are more socially and culturally used to sharing living in communities? So therefore, the fact that the economy is advancing is more important than your privacy or what happens to your data. Is it an issue in China? I think the privacy concern is certainly increased in China, given the um, the growing personal data stock in the hands of all these e-commerce giants. The Chinese government started the credit system development from 2006, as I remember. But the, the credit system built by the government or the central bank only cover a very small portion of the country's population, which is mainly high-income individuals, which is mainly about high-income individuals. But over the past few years, with the fast growth of the e-commerce, companies like Ali and Jingdong, that accumulate thousands, millions of customers who are mainly middle or even lower income individuals. So the data in the hands of this e-commerce giant is much more than the the ones owned by the government. And in most cases, many small, medium online financing platforms, they have to share or buy data from all these e-commerce giant to make their lending decisions. So certainly we see the, the personal transactional data are being used and shared with all these online lending platforms. So certainly the privacy issue is of a growing concern. And are there laws governing privacy? Do people Can people actually challenge the companies that may be using their data wrongly? How does it work? I mean, regarding privacy, I think the legal development is still lagging behind the industrial development, but there are more regulations and administrative measures are being enacted. Unlike other economic sectors, the Chinese government often adopts a very experimental approach. So even though the legal development is lagging behind the industrial development, but more administrative and regulatory measures are being imposed. And Simon, what's your take on the data and privacy issue? Is it an issue in China with the businesses you've spoken to? 
Of course, and it's an issue which every actor in this context is considering carefully. Regulators, companies, academics are researching it. So it's not as if Chinese stakeholders are unaware of the importance of data protection, just as people are here. I, I think what we're seeing, however, in China is a rather unusual industrial model with these very large internet giants like Alibaba or Tencent. They're a little bit like uh, Amazon or Google or Apple combined in some respects. They're merging a number of different functions. And as Boyer was explaining, the transactional data available to them are, are huge and can be mobilized perhaps a, bit, a little bit more easily than is the case in the United States or Europe, in particular in Europe, the data protection regulations have recently been tightened because of EU law changes. Those are coming into force in the UK, notwithstanding the debate here about Brexit. So data protection concerns are a huge issue in mainland Europe and indeed in the UK, a significant issue in America, but less of an issue so far in China in terms of constraints on corporate strategies. So the concern, I think, would be that, again, the big data analytic methods are not completely understood. And there has been research on, not just in China, but more, more, more widely on the question of whether use of big data algorithms or analytics sometimes results in discrimination against vulnerable social groups or in misallocations of resources or misdescriptions of credit risks. And we need effective legal means to control, for example, the possibility that AI, artificial intelligence algorithms, can be misapplied to result in discrimination on the grounds of ethnic origin or even on the grounds of gender. And this is bound to be a huge issue everywhere, I think. This area of legal regulation, again, is affected by rules concerning how far data uh, can be traded across national boundaries. Okay, so in China, there's a big internal data market. In the EU, the same thing. American companies very recently have been putting pressure on the US government to liberalize the rules on trading of data in the American context to create maybe a global data trading context. Data is becoming a highly significant commercial asset in its own right. And indeed, in many ways, data is a commodity now, which is more critically important to companies than more traditional tangible assets. So we're at the beginning of a process which affects all economies of seeing how digitalization affects the creation of new commodities, how regulators respond to that will be very important going forward. This is a developing area. It's too soon to say exactly what sorts of regulations we might be seeing. But privacy and who controls data, whether we control data about ourselves, whether we can control it as consumers and users of internet services, this is a huge area now for law. Well, thank you. Let's just take a break now before we come to part two. 